Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. Well, again, we have been talking for now almost two months about our life with Jesus. And again, I cannot express to you just how important this is. In fact, you might be able to guess because I'm an expository preacher. I like picking a book and working from start to end. And so to take two months off from our Acts sermon series in one sense is killing me because I really can't wait to get into the next chapter and keep digging in. But the other side of me recognizes that this is foundational. If we don't have this, then that doesn't matter. And so I hope that you're taking that to heart as well. I hope that over the last two months, this has helped you have some insights, helped you connect with the Lord in new ways, see things perhaps a little differently. I I hope and pray that what happens here on Sunday mornings is nothing more than the beginning of your time with the Lord throughout the week. And if that has not been the case thus far, I am not without hope that that can't start to happen now in your life with Jesus. And so for those of you who perhaps are stepping in fresh to this and you're not, you don't have any idea what I've been talking about, here's the definition that I've come up with in terms of what I mean by life with Jesus. That mutual and intentional relationship between us and Christ through which we continually grow in our understanding and our experience of his love and our desire to be obedient to him and to be transformed by him and our willingness to be with him on mission and this is just this, this relationship that we're in, the things that are important to God, the things that he did and desires for us that we step into. And I think the thing that we miss the most, that we just overlook the easiest, is the fact that this is a mutual relationship and one that both sides, both parties, are called to be intentional about. Because, you know, as Christians, we celebrate, we sing songs about, we praise God for the things that we receive from him. And so it's easy for us to to formulate in our minds this understanding of our life with Jesus as a one-way street, that that which we receive from the Lord. But in fact, like any relationship that we're ever in, this is a two-way street, a mutual relationship, and we're called to be intentional in uh, fostering our side of this relationship. And God is always faithful to show up with his side of this relationship. And so the whole goal, the whole point of focusing on this as a church is that we lean in, that we engage even more in the in intentional uh, way in our relationship with Jesus. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've, we've taken a look at some specific issues as they've related to this life with Jesus. And I'm gonna talk about one that might make you uncomfortable. In fact, it makes a lot of Christians uncomfortable even to talk about. And that is this, doubt. So here's the question. How do we take a look at, how do we intentionally foster our life with Jesus when doubts set in? And so doubts are common. I'm going to let you off the hook right now. In case you thought I wrote this sermon for you, and you're you're ashamed of the fact that you may have experienced doubts in your life. Here's the thing, you don't have to raise your hand for this. Every one of you deal with doubts, and so do I. Doubt is intrinsic to humanity. In fact, here's just some common ones, and and perhaps you've experienced something or thought something along these lines at some point in your Christian journey. Here's just some common doubts. 
How could God let such bad things happen? What if Christianity isn't true? What if I'm not really saved? What if God can't even help me? What if my ministry efforts make no real difference at all? What if my loved ones never come to faith? What if God's done giving me second chances? And I literally could have spent our whole 30 to 40 minutes together in this sermon time just going over more and more of these questions of doubt that do rise up regularly within us. And again, if you're, if you're feeling like, oh no, Kevin's pushing my buttons and you're starting to feel some shame, let me just encourage you again. The people sitting to your right or to your left, the person standing up here on the stage has deals with questions like this. Doubt is intrinsic to humanity, and we'll talk about why in just a few minutes, but we all experience moments of doubt. The problem is not everybody deals with them well and in a way that strengthens, leans in, in this life with Jesus, and we need to be people who are focused on our life with Jesus. So what does the presence of doubt mean about us? If we have that in our life, does that say something about us, positively or negatively, something I should be concerned about? What does it mean that we experience doubt? What do we do when doubts rise up in us, and how does this affect our life with Jesus? Those are the three questions we're going to answer today. What does the presence of doubt mean about us? Uh, what do we do when doubts rise up, and how does this impact our life with Jesus. And so let's start with the first one. What does the presence of doubt mean about us? If I were to just ask people this privately, I'd probably get a whole lot of different answers. In fact, there's a whole lot of misconceptions about doubt that exist within the body of Christ. Many churches and many Christians look down on doubt. Many churches and many Christians look down on doubt. In fact, in my class that I teach at Crown College, uh, the entire week five of our seven-week class is on this topic of doubt. And students are really uncomfortable talking about that, and I found that most of the reason why this is the case is because they have come up in churches that do not want people to talk about doubt, or that doubt implies a lack of faith, and therefore people are looked down upon, even in churches for having such doubt. And so what tends to happen is that people keep their doubts to themselves, never deal with them or never deal with them in a healthy manner. And as a result, it festers within them. And imagine entire churches that just suppress questions and doubts and entire churches have festering, deteriorating faith because of doubts that are left unanswered, unaddressed, and people just feeling shame about the whole thing. Many churches and many Christians look down on doubt. Many Christians look down on themselves for having doubt. Again, you don't even have to just come up in that kind of atmosphere where the church doesn't want you talking about. People just sometimes feel within themselves that I should not have this question. I should not have this doubt. Shouldn't my faith drown out all questions, drown out all doubts? Shouldn't I be able to go through life without any of the answers to any of my questions and just have faith in Jesus? And so when doubt presents itself, especially at moments of trauma, moments of heartache, hard times in life, these questions are there and we just feel this shame because we feel like they ought not be there. Why is it there? 
And again, because of this, many Christians are hesitant to talk about their doubts. Many even live in denial about their doubts, going on with a mask of over their faces that demonstrate a life that has no doubts, but inside they're harboring plenty of their own. And the biggest misconception, I brought it up already, but the biggest misconception is that the presence of doubt means a lack of faith. And I just want to let you off the hook right now. The presence of doubt does not imply a lack of faith. Let's say that again. The presence of doubt does not imply a lack of faith. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Mark chapter 9. And we're going to start in verse 14. Mark 9, 14. For those of you who don't have a Bible with you, it will also be up on the screen. Thanks to the man in the back with the wonderful hair, who hopes not to grow up to look like his father with no hair. Mark 9, starting in verse 14. Here's what it says. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, And the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you could do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter again. I love this man's response to Jesus. Because Jesus is testing him in this moment. Jesus wants to know where his faith is at. And he says this, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I want you to picture this for a moment. First of all, if you're a parent in this room, you could imagine what it's like to watch your young son or daughter suffering and be completely powerless to help them. I remember when actually Joshua was a a young child, a toddler, couldn't speak, and he was crying and crying and crying, and I had no idea what was wrong. I couldn't fix the problem because I didn't know what the problem was, and my son was not old enough yet to communicate it, and I have never felt so helpless in my entire life that I am right there with my son, and I could do nothing but hold him because I don't know how to fix the problem. 
Now, can you imagine this father who for several years, his son has been afflicted in this way. It's not just about seizures. It is an impure spirit and it's causing him to have these seizures in places that is going to end up getting this kid killed. And this father has not sat idly by and just let it happen. This father is doing everything he can to find a solution. He's been to priests. They can't do anything. He's been to healers. They can't do anything. And here, even as he approaches looking for Jesus, he's with Jesus' disciples. And around them are all these religious leaders who clearly could do nothing. And he even comes to Jesus' disciples, and they're trying to cast out the Spirit, and they couldn't do it. And then here comes Jesus, the person that he had come to seek out. And he's hoping. Why would he even come to Jesus? Except he's desperate. And he hears that this man casts out spirits. This man heals people. And he's hopeful that Jesus could heal his son. But he's been disappointed. Over and over and over, the people you're supposed to go to, the people who should be able to help, have been unable. And so as he brings his son to Jesus, yes, he believes. But there's also the presence of doubt. Because the other people he believed could help have let him down over and over and over. And I could identify with this man. How often do we, we do believe, but, we, but things don't always, prayers don't always get answered the way that we want them to or we think they should. They don't happen always in our timing. People have let us down. God makes no such promise to answer every prayer. And so in moments, don't we also experience this, that we have faith, but even within our faith, there's this presence of doubt, questions, and a little bit of, of worry that things are not going to turn out the way we expect them to, or think they should, or think they will. And so this man represents, I think, most of us as Christians very well. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. He's doubting while believing. And does Jesus turn him away? Because of your lack of faith, this boy cannot be healed. No, he heals him, right? So here's the question. Why do we doubt? Why do we doubt? Does, do any of us want to doubt? Do any of us want to continue to persist with wrestling with doubt within our lives? Wouldn't our lives be so much easier if it just was all taken off us and we never, ever experienced doubt again? Of course. But why do we doubt? Why do we know that's never going to happen this side of Jesus returning? There's a number of reasons. I'll give us just a few this morning. First, <laughs> we're finite, puny human beings, and so we, that word limited could be used a lot. In fact, I'll use it a few times in my answers. One, we have limited knowledge. We have limited knowledge. In fact, the more I read, the more classes I take, the more I realize I know very, very little. We don't have all the answers, and we are always going to find the boundary between what we want to know and what we can know, because there's things we cannot know. And as we try to understand an infinite God and his world, we butt up against the boundaries of our limited knowledge, and there's things that we just don't have the answers for, and we can't have the answers for, and it frustrates us, and it's at those moments that doubt set in because we don't have all the answers that we feel would satisfy us. We have limited cognitive capacity. 
There's not only a limit, limit to what we know, there's a limit to what we're able to know. In fact, somebody said this once to me, uh, do you know that God probably thinks in categories that don't even enter the human consciousness? Here's what I mean by that. That there could be whole categories of thought, whole categories of ideas, whole categories of concepts and way of reasoning things that we're not capable of as human beings, and God is. And so as we think about what it means to try to understand God and his world, there are entire categories that are just beyond our ability to comprehend. We also have a limited perspective. How often we can have all the knowledge needed to understand something, but because of our vantage point, because of the lenses we're looking through, because of our worldview, because of our presuppositions, the truth just eludes us. How many times have you had a conversation with somebody across the aisle of an important decision, and you're just reasoning with them, you're laying it all out, your case is strong, but they just don't get it. And I'm sure people have thought that about us too. But here's the thing, why does that happen? Because we're all limited by our, not just the knowledge we all have, but by our perceptions of it, our pre-understanding, our presuppositions, we're all limited. We have misunderstandings, we have presuppositions, we have blind spots, even when the truth is right before us, even when the answers are right before us, sometimes we just can't see them. And of course, there's competing worldviews and competing truth claims all around us. You know, we live in a day when, the Christian, when Christian belief, even in our country, is the minority position. Where more and more it seems like the default position is to believe something other than the Christian God. We can encounter that when we turn on the TV, when we listen to the radio, when we talk with others. It just seems more and more that the default option for people in our world is not the thing that we believe. And because of that, the doubt always is going to be a present reality with us as we live. But here's the thing, that sounds all discouraging. You came in here to be encouraged this morning and you're walking out like, wow, that stinks, We're, that's that reality we can't change. But here's the thing, I'll give you some good news. We're in good company. Boy, are we in good company. Because here are some people from this book, and several of these are well-respected people who also have dealt with doubt. Janet brought it up this morning. Even Adam and Eve doubted. Uh, put it over there, but you're over there, Janet. <laughs> uh, Adam and Eve doubted, right? It wasn't just about choosing uh, their way over God's way, but why was the serpent's temptation so effective? Um, did God really say, you won't surely die? Hmm. Then maybe I will choose my way instead of God's way. But they started to doubt because of the temptation, the way it was phrased. They started to doubt. Maybe God didn't mean that. Maybe that consequence won't befall me. Maybe it's worthwhile to do this. And doubt begins to set in. Abraham doubted. The father of Israel doubted. Uh, we see this numerous times. God promised him descendants, and descendants weren't coming. So he, he took uh, Hagar, the handmaiden, to uh, his wife and tried to make the promise happen. And so we have Ishmael. Uh, he walked into an area and was afraid that the, that, that the king was going to take his wife and kill him. So he said, 
if anybody asks you, say that you're my sister. Let's go tell a half-truth, and maybe we could get away with our lives. Instead of trusting that God had his back and would protect him through this situation, even Abraham doubted. John the Baptist doubted. We read about this at our Sunday school class this morning. This is the man who heard the voice of the Father. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is the, the person who said that Jesus should be, should be baptizing me. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. This is the one who saw the Holy Spirit descend like a dove from heaven. He knew who Jesus was. He proclaimed who Jesus was. And yet, a short time later, when he was arrested by Herod and he's in prison, he sends his messengers to Jesus to ask this question. Are you the one who was to come or should we expect somebody else? Because things were not going the way he expected them to go and doubt had set in. And the apostles doubted. Not just Thomas. Take that doubting Thomas, that poor man. He has been beaten up through history so much. People think doubting is his first name. No, it's not. All the apostles doubted uh, when Jesus died and rose again. It was just outside of their understanding. They couldn't believe this was happening. And doubt began to rise up. So here's the question. What do we do then? We know doubt is a reality. It's intrinsic to humanity. We're all going to deal with it. It's not going away until Jesus comes back. So what do we do when doubts rise up in our minds and in our hearts and in our lives? Well, what do we do when we have doubts in human relationships? And believe me, we have doubts in human relationships. I haven't done a ton of pastoral counsel, of marriage counseling, but I've done enough uh, to give you some uh, examples of things that come up in a marriage. And then I've been married long enough to know that questions come up in a marriage, doubts come up in a marriage. Um, you don't have to pray for us any more than you already do. We're good, me and Jenny. But here's things that just that come up naturally, over the, especially the longer you're together, right? Does he love me anymore? Is he bored with me? If he had it to do over, would he marry me again? What does his lack of communication mean about our marriage? Are we still married just for the kids and grandkids? Okay, I know this could be a lot of really interesting conversations among the married couples over lunch, and we're available this week for marriage counseling. No, but don't we, it doesn't matter what relationship you're in, friendships, dating, uh, marriages, relationships with you and your kids, Every relationship has doubts. Do my kids respect me? Do they love me? Are they going to be okay on their own? Are they listening to me? Uh, have I been a good parent? I mean, we have these kinds of doubts in every relationship, and it's no different in our relationship with God. So what do you do when doubts rise up in a human relationship? What would you do in that situation? Would you pull away or lean in? Well, forget what would you do. What should you do? Don't pull away. You lean in in those moments, right? You ask the questions. You have the uncomfortable conversations, right? You work to resolve the doubts with the other person. Ask questions, seek answers. And it's, same, it's the same way as we think about our life with Jesus, our relationship with God. We have the same choice before us. Do you lean in in those moments or do you use those doubts as an opportunity to push God away? What should we do? We should lean in, not pull away in those times. And here's the thing. There's, when we think about doubts, it's not, the bad thing is not having doubts. Again, we all have doubts. The thing is, what do you do 
with those doubts? How do you respond when you have doubts? And so I want to put this in terms of types of doubts. And I didn't create this. This was from a, uh, my professor, Gary Habermas, but I think he, he captures this well by categorizing doubt into three different categories. Intellectual doubt, emotional doubt, and volitional doubt. And I want to talk to you about these for just a moment. Um, intellectual doubt. Those are those unanswered questions. Those are those moments when you don't know why something happened. Those are those moments when a critic brings up a question that you don't have an answer to or an objection that you don't have an answer to. That's those moments when those questions seep in and it bothers you that you don't know the answer to those questions. That's, a, that's intellectual doubt. What's emotional doubt? A trauma happens, a diagnosis happens, bad health happens, you lose somebody you love, something bad happens, and you ask, why did God allow this to happen? Couldn't God have stopped this? Why didn't God stop this? Or perhaps you've been hurt in a relationship in the past, and because of the doubts you have in human relationships, you just automatically, your automatic predisposition is to have those doubts in terms of your relationship with God. It's hard to trust him because other people who you should have been able to trust have been untrustworthy. And so there's this position of doubt. That's emotional doubt. And you know what? Both of those categories are very common to all people, especially in different circumstances. These are just some of the doubts that we deal with. But what's volitional doubt? Volitional doubt is that moment when you, those, those, those questions or those moments, that emotional, that intellectual doubt now becomes your, your meaning, your impetus, your, your tool for pushing God away instead of leaning in. It's a choice to continue to doubt. It's willful doubt of the things that we ought to have faith in. And that's the part that we can't say that's okay. We all have intellectual doubt. We all have emotional doubt. But we ought not let that translate to volitional doubt in our lives. We cannot let our doubts push us away from God. We ought to let our doubts push us toward God. We have to choose to lean in. And we need to work to resolve doubt, right? This is what we do in human relationships. This is what we need to do in our relationship with God. We not only need to keep our doubts from becoming volitional doubt, but then we have to take our doubts and let it lead us to the Lord. We need to work to resolve it with him. And how do we do that? Well, first we pray, right? You don't push away, you lean in in those moments. Pray that God would give you resolution, that he would bring you answers, that he would help you to work through this as you process it. Bring your questions up with trusted brothers and sisters in the Lord. We need to stop keeping doubts to ourselves. We need to stop hiding it as if it's a shameful thing that we shouldn't be able to talk about with our church family. We need to find a trusted brother or trusted sister in the Lord and say, listen, don't judge me. I know you love me. I know, you, I, I, know I could talk to you about this. And I know you probably have doubts of your own, but here's what I'm wrestling with. I don't have the answer. I don't know why this happened and lay it out before a trusted brother and sister in Christ and work through these things before the Lord together. Seek the answers together before the Lord. There are more answers to questions we have than you know. How about intellectual and emotional doubt versus volitional doubt in the Bible? Those are good categories that my professor came up with, but do we see that in the Bible? Do we see this idea of an intellectual doubt, an emotional doubt, and this volitional doubt in the Bible. And I guarantee you we do. I'll give you one example of volitional doubt. 
Judas Iscariot. Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. Now, nowhere in the Gospels does it say he experienced volitional doubt, but let's take a look at what Judas did. Why was, you ever wonder why Judas was even a follower of Jesus? Here's this man who ultimately turned him over for money to the religious leaders that he would be arrested and killed. Why on earth, three years before that, would Judas even follow Jesus? The simple answer, he believed Jesus was the Messiah. He believed he was the one who was to come, the one that the Old Testament prophesied would come, the one who would restore Israel, the one who was sent by God. He would not have given up his life and followed after Jesus if he did not believe Jesus to be who Jesus claimed he was. So first of all, let's remember that. He followed Jesus because he believed Jesus to be who Jesus was. But here's the thing about this Jesus. The more and more he traveled with these companions, he kept saying things like this. We're going to Jerusalem. When I get there, I'm going to be rejected by the religious leaders. They're going to crucify me. And three days later, I'm going to rise again. What? We see over and over again when those moments happen in the Gospels, it says the disciples did not understand but they were afraid to ask him about it. They weren't expecting Jesus to go to his death. They were expecting Jesus to march into Jerusalem, overthrow the Romans, sit on David's throne, and rule as king over Israel. We see this even after Jesus' death and resurrection. In Acts 1-6, the disciples are like, are you now going to do that? Because that was the expectation. And as Judas walked with Jesus, and Jesus, and it just kept seeming like that wasn't going to happen. Instead, Jesus was going to go and allow himself to be turned over. The religious leaders were going to reject him, and he's going to be killed. Maybe I don't want to follow this Jesus. Maybe this Jesus is not who I thought he was. And doubt crept in. But for him, it didn't just end with a question that didn't have an answer. With him, it was a doubt that justified in his mind being able to turn over Jesus for money to the religious leaders. Doubt, which it was okay to have, became volitional doubt for Judas. What about intellectual and emotional doubt? We see this in Luke 24, starting in verse 13. If you have your Bibles with you, open up to that passage. Luke 24, starting in verse 13. It'll be up on the screen as well. Here's what it says in Luke 24, starting in verse 13. Now that same day, two of them, oh, sorry, let me set this up for you. Jesus has died. And now there's rumors going around that people have seen him alive. But here's the aftermath of disciples who have watched his, their, their Lord die. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their, face, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, 
Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they didn't see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if they were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So we went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It's true! The Lord has risen, and he appeared to Simon! Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. All right, what's happening here? First of all, it's clear that Jesus' followers understood he was the Messiah. But what did they say to, to Jesus as he walked along the road? They're downcast. They're sad. Do you not know the things that have happened? Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet. They're not the Messiah now prophet. Why did, it, why did Jesus get a downgrade in their mind? Because they believed him to be the Messiah, but when he died, I guess he wasn't, but he was a powerful prophet. They did not imagine a world where the Messiah died. They had doubts, but instead of using it as volitional doubt, they were open when Jesus opened up the scriptures to explain this has happened and then revealed to them that it is him who's with them they believed and they rejoiced and they were excited because their doubts were answered and here was Jesus who they had always believed he was. And so it's okay to have intellectual and emotional doubt and we see it in scripture, but we, not, we need to have a willingness to have our doubts resolved and to be restored instead of using our doubts to leverage and push God away. So what do we do when doubts rise up? We wrestle with them before the Lord. We wrestle with them with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We trust God. We know that it's because we're limited that we don't have all the answers. We trust him and we seek those answers. It's okay to seek answers to the questions that we have, but we do so with the Lord. So how does this all impact our life with Jesus? Isn't it still bad to have doubt? Well, I don't know if you've heard of Pastor Tim Keller. I hope that you have. Uh, he was a pastor for many, many years in the Manhattan church. Um, wonderful theologian and apologist. Just a, a good, good man. And here's one of the things he said in one of his books uh, about doubt. Actually, I'm sorry. This is what he said in an interview about doubt. He says this. Before college, I think I believed Christian doctrine, but I didn't have a personal relationship with God. 
It was not a true encounter. Then the intellectual doubts, in a sense, pushed me through to get that encounter. So my doubts were actually the best thing that ever happened to me in hindsight. What happened to him? He had a relationship with God, or at least he, you know, he thought he did. He was, going, he was going to school. He believed Christian doctrine. He read the Bible. He was a Christian. He would have told anybody he was a Christian. But he had never had a moment of wrestling with God where God was real to him in his life. And his doubts caused him to face this moment and to wrestle with God. And instead of pushing God away, he wrestled with God and came out the other side even stronger in his faith and recognizing that he, there was a deepness to his relationship with God he didn't have but this doubt enabled him to experience that with the Lord. You know, doubts don't have to be a bad thing. As long as they push us to God, they only become a bad thing when we allow them or use them to push, us, or to push God away. You know, earlier I gave examples of possible doubts within a marriage relationship. What happens when we deal with those doubts with our spouse? It looks like this often, right? At least I hope it does, right? You talk, you know, you're honest. You ask more questions, even hard questions. Uh, we work through things, right? Our misconceptions are cleared up. Yeah, I, I, I don't understand. I, I know all the time that if I have a conflict with Jenny, it's probably because I'm wrong. I misunderstand things. So. Uh, but we have misconceptions, right? When we talk about it, they get cleared up. Oh, that's what you meant. I guess I shouldn't have gotten offended and stormed out. I, didn't, I misunderstood you. Yeah, we ask these questions. We have our misconceptions cleared up. We walk away feeling closer as a result of that process, right? Which only, only would have arisen because of our doubts. If we didn't have that moment of doubt, it wouldn't have drawn us together to talk and ask and wrestle and work through it. And then you come out the other side even stronger for having wrestled with that with your spouse. Well, guess what? The same result happens when we wrestle with our doubts before the Lord instead of just hiding them or pushing him away in those times. This is true in our life with Jesus. Unanswered questions tend to become seeds of doubt, but answered questions tend to affirm our faith. And so we need to lean in with the Lord and with others to seek those answers. When unanswered questions arise and doubt begins to sneak in, the remedy is seeking the answers together with others before the Lord Jesus. Maybe we've heard a skeptic uh, uh, make what seems like a really compelling argument and we have absolutely no idea what to, what to do or how to respond. Instead of abandoning our faith, we should pray, we should bring it up with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we should seek answers to these questions, to these objections that are being raised. Maybe we've endured a trauma in life and we, we just can't imagine why God would allow something like this to happen. And doubt about God's love, doubt about God's power, perhaps even doubt about God's goodness start to creep in. So what do we do? Instead of being angry and shaking our fist at God and holding him at arm's length, we should pray. We should, we should bring it up with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should spend time in the scriptures to remind ourselves of God's perfect love, of God's perfect power, of God's perfect goodness, and remind us that bad things are going to happen in a broken world. That's just the nature of it, right? But that God is always present, always available to provide comfort and strength. He's our rock in those times. And when we push him away, instead of lean in, our doubts have just hurt us even more. Instead of driving us to the only one who could give us hope. And we remember as we read the scriptures that there's a day that's coming where no more traumas, no more bad news, no more bad diagnoses, no more, no more lost loved ones will ever take place again. 
You know, in this process, this journey, this wrestling, God is present with us. And coming out on the other side, our life with Jesus will be deeper, it'll be more mature, and we'll possess more testimonies of his goodness and his grace. So friends, if you experience doubts of various kinds, let me just tell you, that's okay. That's not the problem. What you do with your doubt is what's most important. And so lean into Jesus, lean on your brothers and sisters in those times.